Well, how are you guys doing? You guys doing good? This, uh, this is probably my favorite season of the whole year. That's why I'm in such a good mood this morning. I don't know why. I woke up this morning and just kind of felt like Christmas. And, uh, this, uh, season is slowly becoming, um, it, for me, it's like, uh, it's Hallmark season. Uh, I don't know if you guys do this, but we watch a lot of Hallmark movies at Christmas time. And we don't watch them because they're good. Because they're not. We, we know that they're not good. We watch them because, of, where's Mindy? There she is in the back row. She's trying to hide. She doesn't want me to point her out, but she's the reason that we all watch them. And we kind of have our thing that we do. We get our snacks, you know, and then we sit on the couch, me and Mindy do. We sit on the main couch in front of the TV, and the kids have to fend for themselves with whatever seats are left. And then Mindy, she always puts her feet on my lap, and then we watch the Hallmark movie, and uh, she just, you know, revels in the sap of this movie <laughs> while the boys... And I ridicule this movie mercilessly. (laughs) That's our tradition. And it's wonderful, because they're all exactly the same, you know, and uh, all some, you know, some big city lady that comes in, you know, and she falls in love with the janitor because he has a great sense of humor or something (laughs) like that, you know. And uh, she's like, man, everybody's so friendly here. And they're like, well, that's what Christmas Cove is all about. You're like, man, it's like... What are these people going to come up with a new plot? And, uh, but it is wonderful. And it just, but it makes the whole house feel Christmassy. So we do it every single year. And, oh, thank you so much. And, uh, we're looking forward to that today. We're going to go home uh, after we have lunch. We're going to go and, um, Mindy's already informed us there's a new Christmas movie out. And, um, and of course there actually is no such thing as a new Christmas movie, but, uh, and we're going to put up our tree and everything. Anybody else put their trees up? Yeah? few people? How many are going to be doing something Christmassy today? Anybody? Yeah, well, that's nice. It is really nice. I love Christmas. It's a wonderful time to get fat. And uh, nobody can tell because you put on the sweaters. Isn't that great about wintertime? Put on the sweaters, man. And you put on about 10 pounds and you can cover it all up. That's why preachers wear jackets. We can cover up all of that. All that good love underneath, right? Well, um, I am uh, so glad to be here. Brian Hedges is out of town, unfortunately, and he thought, who can I get uh, for cheap? And so <laughs> he, uh, he asked me to come, and uh, it is always a pleasure. Uh, this is a real home away from home for me and for my family. We were just talking about this last night, uh, how faithfully you guys have supported us, and for so long... Uh, I can remember one of the first times I preached for you back when you guys were in that little like strip mall place. What, I don't know. What was that, that location? Where was that located? Huh? On commercial? Right. And, um, yeah, I was, I remember I taught uh, out of First Thessalonians in the sermon there at that time and you guys have been supporting us all of this time. It's just been uh, it's been wonderful. We've been on the field for 20 years. And I know you're probably thinking, well, that's impossible, Brian, because you still look delicious. <laughs> but it's true. I've been on the field for 20 years. Mindy has been on the field for 20 years. And uh, this is, uh, can we go to the, I think, to the first screen, if we could? There should be a, a, a screen of my family. I want to show you them. Is there one? Yeah. Okay. That's uh, yeah. We'll, uh, we'll get that rebooted because I want to show you all of them because they've all changed. And Madison, unfortunately can't be here with us this morning. Um, because she's uh, finishing up her last year at the university of Cardiff in Wales. She's doing a philosophy degree and this is her last year. So that gives you an idea of the time scale we're talking about, because Madison is 21 years old, and uh, which means I'm just old. And I, tur- I turned 50 this year. And um, but anyway, the rest of them, if you guys uh, just raise your hands, I won't have you stand up. But Mindy and Caitlin and Stefan are back there, and then Hudson is right up here. 
Hudson, why don't you stand up so they can take a look at you. Yeah. <laughs> there he is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He gets an applause for for existing. <laughs> there he is. And uh, so that's uh, that's wonderful. But uh, anyway, uh, this is my wonderful family, and I I am so glad that they can be here with me because there would not be a church over in the city of London if it was not for Mindy. She is the backbone of everything that we do. She's the reason why we have a house, the reason why we have a home, and uh, the reason why our ministry is able to function is all because of Mindy. And uh, oh, are they there? Yeah, there they are. There's the picture of them. So if you could please pray for us, because you can, if you look deep into my wife's eyes, you can tell that she is a very expensive lady. <laughs> She's ter- terribly, terribly expensive. So uh, we need loads of support <laughs> just so that I can uh, keep her happy. And uh, if you can see my son on the end, uh, that he's uh, that's actually an old picture. He's much larger than that because he will not stop eating. <laughs> Half of our support budget goes just to his food. It's ridiculous. You buy like a box of cereal, he'll eat half of the box in one sitting. It's a it, it's a sin problem. I think it's a sin problem. <laughs> Gluttony. Man, it feels so nice to be able to be in a place where you can feel so comfortable just to uh, insult your family members. <laughs> you don't have to be so formal. I, I really do love being here, and uh, I really do love you guys. And I am very happy to announce, if we go to that next slide, I'm happy to announce that the first church plant is done. And we accomplished that. And uh, that church plant is finished. We've trained up a local pastor. And uh, now, whenever I say that a church plant is done, uh, what do we mean by that? So I think that there's like three points that will go up uh, on that particular slide. There it is. And this is what we mean whenever we say that a church plant is finished, uh, because it's never finished, right? It's like a, a pastor saying that his sermon is finished, right? It's never, it's never done. Uh, you can always fix it. You can always tweak it. And um, and so it's the same way with the church. A church is never done, really. But whenever a church planter is planting a church and they say, okay, this one's done, what they mean is they've accomplished really these three things. The church has to be self-governing. It has to be self-supporting and self-propagating. And that, that enables any church to be able to stand on its own. So they're able to govern themselves. they got their own pastor, uh, their own government. And uh, they've, they're also self-supporting, so the, the work comes from within, from the tithes of their own people. And they're self-propagating, so they're out soul-winning, they're making disciples, they're able to multiply and reproduce on their own. And this church is now able to do that without any of the clerks being there, and they're able to do that. And the main reason why, if we go to the next... Oh, the screen disappeared. Okay. Well, the, the reason why we're able to do that is because we trained up a pastor uh, by the name of Paul Waller. And this guy is an absolute blessing to our church. And uh, him and his wife, Emma, I think, uh, there they are. And, and their three boys, Robin, Isaac, and Luke, uh, they are just an absolute answer to prayer. And, and that's, and I mean that literally. Like I was praying when we first got there for God to give me a disciple who really gets it, who really understands. And it was one week later after I prayed that prayer that Paul walked through the front doors of our church and uh, I began to disciple him. And we went through about nine months of discipleship. And then after that, he told me he felt like he was called into the ministry. And so that I've trained him for like the next six years. And trained him in his theology, trained him in expository preaching, all the pastoral procedures, evangelism, discipleship, even down to his own personal devotional time and his married life and everything I could think of. Uh, we trained him and he actually turned out to be an excellent pastor and a great preacher. You can actually listen to him. He has a podcast. It's called 
Paul's podcast, which I thought was a little on the nose, right? But uh, it, it works. It alliterates. And, uh, and so you can actually listen to him on iTunes or Spotify and all these different places. You can find that podcast, but you can listen to him preach. And he sounds so good. He's got that nice British accent, just like me. And, uh, and you can listen to him preach. But one of the main reasons why we come here and the reason why we're traveling all over the United States, uh, literally from corner to corner of the United States, we're going to be traveling over the next year. And the reason why we're doing that, the main reason, is to say thank you. We want to say thank you to all of you for your constant and long support, both financially and prayerfully. Uh, we could not be more grateful. And that would be my only concern today is that the possibility of us leaving out of here today and traveling on to the next church and for you guys to not know that, for you guys to not know how grateful we are, uh, to be able to stand with us uh, for the last two decades as we tried to figure out how to plant a church in the city of London, which was no easy thing to do. And just, just to figure that out, and you guys stood with us the whole time, and uh, you guys have been one of the longest and greatest supporters that our work in London has ever had. And so I really hope that as we talk about this this morning, I hope that it will kind of sink in with you that it was not just the Clarks that planted a church in London, but Heartland Baptist Fellowship is, has planted a church in London. You guys are responsible for that. Now, we as a family, besides just making disciples and planting churches, uh, one of the burdens that we have, one of the responsibilities that we have, that we feel that we have, is to make sure that you have fruit uh, to your account. And that is the real reason why you support our work in London. We want to make sure as a family, we want to go over there, we want to plant churches, we want to do all of that stuff, but one of the main responsibilities we have is to make sure that whenever you show up at the judgment seat of Christ, that there is fruit waiting on you when you get there. And I can guarantee you that there is already some there that has your name on it. And I cannot wait for that day that we get to join in the celebration, the real celebration of all the fruit that can be there because of all the different works that you guys have supported. And so you can see that whenever you support a missionary, it's not just the right thing to do. It's really just smart money, right? When you support a missionary, when you pray for a missionary, because whenever you do that, every single soul that they win to Christ, every disciple that they make, every church that they plant, that gets credited to your account. That becomes a soul that you won by extension, and so we see that clearly from Philippians chapter 4. Paul said the reason why he wants them to give is not because he needs it. It's because he desires fruit to their account. And so that is one of our responsibilities to, to make sure that you have plenty of fruit waiting on you when you arrive in heaven. But when it comes to actually trying to plant a church in London, I want to tell you a little bit about what that is like. And some of you have been over there. Some of you have visited. And so you kind of have an idea what the culture is like. But if we go to the next slide, I want to give you an idea of what this culture is like. Now, the predominant uh, thought process is secular humanism. That is the predominant idea of how people view the pro- predominant paradigm, if you will, of how v- people view the world, how they view their life is secular humanism. And what that means is, is that whenever it comes to real problems, when it comes to uh, real issues, whether it be personally or in society, uh, God is not permitted a seat at the table, really. Now, you can pray, you can do your little prayers and stuff like that at home if you want to believe in something, whatever superstition that you might have, that's fine. But when it comes to real problems then we need real solutions. That's the way that they would see it. There is a glass ceiling over the universe. What you see is what you get. This is all there is. It is basically just the let's try to get along and the promotion and the exaltation of the self. And so that is the predominant thought process in the city of London. They are secular humanists. 
and they are extremely proud of it. Right where we live is where uh, Charles Darwin was from. His house is not very far from our house. And they are very proud of their humanism. They're very proud that they live in a secular society. But London is a very unique creature because it is not just a secular humanistic place, but it is also a religious place. That is another part of that triangle. They have a huge religious history. Now, they are not necessarily a religious people, the newer generations, but they have such a deep religious history. And that history has been predominantly, in the, in the history, has always been a battle between Protestant and Catholic. And so they have that history of, the, of Catholicism, but they also have a history of the Anglican Church, or what they would call the Church of England. And these two churches are basically the same. The Church of England is just the Catholic Church's twin sister. And so you have this huge religious culture. And, and the reason why that's important to understand is because whenever you talk to any person on the street or any friend that you might make or whatever, and you're talking to them about Jesus, whenever they hear the name of Jesus or they hear Christianity, what they immediately associate with that is that you're telling them to fix their life up. That's what they that's what they automatically assume is you're telling them to straighten up. You're telling them to start behaving right. Uh, you're telling them to turn over a new leaf and try to be a good person. That religious history, even down to the younger people, whenever you start talking about Jesus, that's automatically what they start thinking of. And so you have to overcome that. You have to overcome all of that religion. That's the reason why our T-shirts always say no religion just Jesus is because we want people to see that we're not there to talk to them about being religious. We're there to talk to them about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, if that was not difficult enough to have those two things as a mix, I mean, you would think that those are very contradictory, but it gets even more complex because along with the secular humanism and along with the religious history, you also have a a rich aspect of magic in the city of London. London is filled with magic as well. And they've always had that as a part of their history. If you think back even to the legend of their origin uh, with King Arthur and the round table, uh, they always had the knights that they represented that strong ethic that the knights were supposed to have. These were the men who would always keep their word. They would always save the damsel in distress, and they were there to defeat the dragons. And they had this strength about them, but they also had that morality about them. But at the same time, on the other side, Arthur always had Merlin that was there to perform his magic as well. And these two aspects have always been a part of London culture, even right up to today, where we have uh, Mary Poppins, where we have Narnia, where we have Lord of the Rings, where we have Harry Potter, and we have all of these aspects that the culture just always identifies and, and loves And so the reason why that's important to understand when you're trying to plant a church in the city of London is because a Londoner will come up to one of you and they will think, man, how silly are you that you would believe in God? But then they will go that night and have their palm read so that they can learn what their future will be, right? And they will think, how silly that you believe in Jesus and and to, to think that he rose from the dead, How ridiculous is that? But then they will go that night to their medium so that they can talk to someone on the other side. And they have both of these aspects in their mind. They would think you're so silly to believe in God because we know this is a secular world. They are secular humanists and what I can touch and what I can taste and see and feel, that's really all there is. And then they will go and they will indulge in all of these magical behaviors as well. If you walk into a local bookstore, you can see, especially amongst the young people, almost every single book that is written to the younger audience in London today is a book about magic in some aspect or another. So whenever we're trying to reach people, we have to overcome all three of these aspects when we're trying to reach someone in the city of London. We have to reach every single one of them, or have to overcome all of these. We have to overcome their secular humanism. 
And at the same time, we have to overcome their religious history. And we have to overcome their magical ideas. That's one of the reasons why the charismatic movement has found a kind of a foothold in the city of London is because the charismatic movement really plays into that magical side. Because that's what charismatic doctrine is. As Christians, we believe in miracles. But the charismatic doctrine teaches magic. And those are two different things. We believe in miracles, don't we? But we do not believe in magic. And that's what the charismatic uh, doctrine teaches. And that really appeals to the English person, to the Londoner. And so we have to go in and try to overcome all of these as we share the gospel with them. And that makes it very difficult. And the devil has done his job. There are 10 million million people in this city. Less than 2% of the culture go to a church of any kind. But that's not really where the danger is. I kind of like that statistic, to be honest. Because most of the churches today, we don't want them to go to those anyway, to be honest. Uh, Most of the churches today are teaching a bunch of craziness, right? Uh, They certainly are not teaching this. Um, And so that doesn't bother me so much. The, The part about London that is so hard is that the devil has done a good job of severing all of the normal community lines that the gospel in a normal community would travel over. And so, like, if you were to go to, like, uh, India, you know, if you were to go to a place like South America, and you were to reach someone with the gospel, there's a possibility that their entire extended family might show up to church that week to see what's going on, right? Because they function more as a family unit. But in the city of London, it is not like that. We do not have a community in our city. London is a place where 10 million individuals live. There is no community there. London is notorious for being one of the loneliest places that you can live. Because all of your friends are on Facebook. You do not know your neighbors. And the people that you work with, you do not live around them. And so people can be very lonely, and they can be very alone. And so when you win one person to the Lord, most of the time, you've only won one person. You remember when the Philippian jailer got saved, when Paul led him to Christ, it says that he got saved, and his whole household. And I think even in the United States, we have trouble understanding like how that process happens. How do they get saved as a household? Because this individualistic idea has spread even from Europe, even into the United States. And we're starting to deal with that today. And people are becoming more isolated and they begin to live more as individuals as opposed to a family unit, as opposed to a community. And so we really deal with that in the city of London. So we cannot win them by the net fools. This is why this is important to understand. We can't win them by the net fools We have to be fly fishermen. We got any fly fishermen in here? Any fishermen? Yeah, amen. (laughs) And uh, that's the way we have to win them, just one at a time. And that takes a long time. You win someone, and as you guys know, you win someone to Christ, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out. So half of those people fall away, as we know from Mark chapter 4. You know, we got about a one in four shot of someone actually being... Uh, you know, the seed falling into good soil and producing fruit. And so with everyone that you win, you always have the potential that someone is going to either reject. We have a potential that someone is going to be fake. We have the potential that someone is going to be fruitless. And then we have that potential that someone will be fruitful. And you have to win them one at a time, and it takes so much time. But over the years, uh, we have won people to Christ. We have seen people come into the church And now there is a Bible-believing, King James Bible-believing, disciple-making, soul-winning, expository preaching church that lives in London where there was not one before. And that is because of you guys. They exist there. Uh, Paul Waller gets up and he preaches the King James Bible every single week. Expository preaching. He is discipling people as we speak. Every single week they are going out on the street and they are soul winning. And that that representation is there. We have got a foothold now in the city of London, uh, which is a crossroads for the entire world. And that has happened because of your investment, both financially and prayerfully, 
in the city of London. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for that. But we're not done. Uh, we're really just getting started. Uh, what we want to accomplish, and this is what I want to talk to you about next, is what we want to see and what we want to accomplish for the future. It is what we call our 2030 vision. Now, the reason why we're here on this furlough is because we want to go around and we want to tell everybody thank you. And I think that that really should be done face to face. I get that from the Apostle Paul when he was done with his missionary journey. He went back to Antioch and he rehearsed with them all that God had done. And I thought, we really need to do that. The people that have supported us for so long, they deserve for us to say thank you face to face as opposed to an email. There's nothing wrong with emails. Uh, We utilize emails a lot. Uh, But I prefer this if we can do it. And uh, so we're going to have to travel around to all the churches that support us to do that. Uh, But we're also raising some more support, you know, and we have to raise some some more support so that we can go back. And our uh, goal is to return one year from now. So next year at the end of 24 in December, we'll probably stay for one last Christmas. And then January of 25, we'll fly back home so that we can start working on the second church plant. And then our goal is, once we land in London in January of 25, our goal is to have the second church up and running in five years. And that will take, uh, it'll be an absolute miracle if that happens. The first church took us at least 15 years uh, to get that established. The, that church is called Crossroads Baptist Church, and that church is actually the third one. Uh, we started the church, and then the devil came in and destroyed it. Then we had to rebuild it, and then he came in and destroyed it again, and then we rebuilt it again. So what we have there is like Crossroads 3.0. And, uh, and it's going pretty strong now, uh, but we have learned so much over that time as to how a church should be planted, and specifically how one should be planted in the city of London. And so with that knowledge and with the help of Crossroads Baptist Church, because they're going to be involved in the next church plant, we really feel like if God is willing, if he is gracious, then we will be able to uh, plant another church and have it up and running in five years. That's our goal, is by 2030 for us to have two churches over there instead of just one. And so what that will really mean is that we need to find a building and we need to find a man that is called. And we're going to get into that in a second. But our goal, the reason why we're doing this is because I hope my original goal was to plant 10 churches. And to be honest, um, I think I'll be dead long, long before I get to church number 10. Uh, but I'm hoping that in my lifetime that I could get to three or four. That'd be really great. And uh, at five years, uh, a church, I'll, I'll be dead in ten years. Right? So, uh, not really. If uh, if I maybe if I would eat a little better, then maybe I'd live a little bit longer. But this first church, I, it just it just about killed us. And uh, so uh, we don't know what the second church will do. So we're hoping that we can get maybe three or four churches uh, before the Lord calls us home or before the Lord comes back. And in that, uh, the three or four churches that are Bible-believing churches that have the same DNA, the reason why we're doing that is because we want to create a network between these churches. We want each of these churches to be far enough away from each other that they can be independent, but we want them to be close enough together so that they can create fellowship between one another and so they can have a network between them. Because the reason why we want a network is because we want these churches to begin to train up people so that we can start sending out missionaries of our own. This is our ultimate goal with the city of London, is that we want to turn London into a launch pad for world missions. That has always been our goal. There was a day a long time ago in our history where that was the case for the city of London. Though my, uh, my favorite missionary, my hero, of whom I've named my son after, Hudson Taylor, was sent out from England. And many others have been as well. And there was a time whenever the, the word of God was going out there, uh, from there to the rest of the world. And I believe that that can happen again. And so that is our plan, is to plant a number of churches so we can create a network between them, so that we can train up missionaries and we can start sending people out to the rest of the world from the city of London. 
But this is going to require your prayers. So when we land in the city of London, there's a number of things that I need you to pray for. So let's go over the things I really need you guys to pray for. And that is, number one, that while we're here, that we'll raise the support that we need. And uh, also that we will find the right house. Uh, whenever you're going to go on a short-term missions trip, uh, where you stay doesn't really matter. I mean, when I'm traveling around the world, man, you should see some of the places I've stayed in. Um, it doesn't matter. You can you can endure anything for three weeks. You can endure a lot of places for three months. But when you're trying to accomplish this type of a plan and you're there for the long term, like you're there for the rest of your lives, then the house that you find, the neighborhood you live in, the house that your wife is going to turn into a home, uh, that place becomes vital. That is the place where you go. That's where you retreat to so that you can recuperate so that you can stay there for the long term. So us finding the right house for Mindy to be able to create a home, to be able to cr- be able to create a headquarters and a home base for all of us is vitally important. And that's not easy to find in the city of London. So we're praying not only for us to raise the support, but also praying for us to find the right house whenever we return. Now, added to those two things, the main two things ministry-wise that we need to find is we need to find the right building. And this is uh, this is one of those things that can only happen with your prayers, because in the city of London, one of the things that is so scarce is space. And it's not just with the churches, but even with secular companies, any space that opens up, they just they snatch it up as quick as they can, because there's no room over here in the states. When you just got land as far as the eye can see but the entire country of the united kingdom of great britain if you were to take it you could fit the whole thing into oregon it is not a big place there is not a lot of space there's not land there's not a lot of office space there's not a lot of building space and so finding a building that will be adequate for a church to meet and to grow in uh, really is going to require your prayers And it is one of those things that's absolutely vital. If we can find the right building, and then the last one is if we can find the right man. If we can find another man that is called, like Paul Waller was called, uh, then I believe those are the two key things that we need to make sure that we can get a church up and running in five years. So if you could pray specifically for these four things, that, that we could have, that we could raise the support, that we could have the right house, for Mindy, and that we can have the right building for our church, and that we can have the right man that is called. I'm not talking about just someone who wants to be a part of the team or wants to come and help. We need a man who is called in order to be able to pastor this church. So if you guys could pray for this. Now, there'll be loads of other prayers and stuff that we'll send along the way, but I want you to keep these four close to you all the time. And by 2030, if we continue to pray, I believe that we'll see a second church there as a result. Now, one of the things we want to do and change is we want to do a much better job of communicating. Uh, This is not one of my strong suits. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I love to preach. I love to talk to you like this. But emails, oh my gosh. Does anybody else feel this way about emails? Emails are horrible, aren't they? Like, man, if I, if, if someone asked me to teach, like they asked me in LFBI, they asked me to teach the book of Hebrews. And I thought, this is the most wonderful opportunity in the world. And I love to sit down and write out this study of the book of Hebrews, because when it comes to that kind of stuff, I just absolutely geek out, man. I love that stuff. I love to study. I love to write sermons. And if Mindy's like, you know what, you have an email that needs to be answered, I'm like, oh, Oh, come on. She's like, it would take you five seconds, Brian, to answer this email. And I'm just like, why don't you just like pull out my fingernails instead? I can't, I hate emails and texts and texts are the most intrusive because they expect a response immediately and they can tell that you've read it, (laughs) right? They can see on there that you've read the text. And so now you're like, now I have to answer. I mean, I don't know what my problem is. I have some sort of mental problem when it comes to this. So I have determined that I am going to become excellent with my emails and my texts and all that and my communications 
uh, in the years moving forward. Because I want to make sure, here's the reason why I want to do that. It's not because I love technology, even though it can be a blessing if we use it right. It's because I want you to stay informed. Because if you guys are informed, then you know better how to pray. And you know better what is going on, and you're more engaged in what we're doing. So we want you to stay informed. So here's what I created. I created this. This is a miracle in itself, okay? The fact that I was able to make this, I mean, I was so, I stood there and I just stared at it for like two hours after I made it. Now, I talked to some of my friends and they're like, yeah, it's a QR code, big deal. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is like someone creating fire, you know? It was so wonderful for me to do that because I am so technologically challenged. So here's what I want you to do is I want you to take out your phones, if you could, right now. All of you take out your phones, please work with me. And do this for me, okay? You would not believe, okay, the, what I went through to accomplish this QR code. So if you could take out your, your phones and then look at that or you, you put it up, you know what to do. Like immediately with young people, I showed them this. They took out their phone. They did it. I did, had no explanation was required. But if you do that and then it will take you to a sign up so that you can sign up for our newsletters so that we can send you, we're going to send you new content on a regular basis. We're going to send you newsletters. We're going to send you prayers and updates. We're going to send you all of that stuff. And we're going to try to communicate with you so much better moving forward. I hope that you've enjoyed our newsletters and stuff in the past. But we're going to try to communicate with you so much better because we want you to stay informed. And we want you to sign up so that you can always be informed. Now, one of the things I will tell you that you'll see, if you do sign up, one of the things you'll see that is going to be coming to you very soon is we just finished our third book. And our third book is called Just Ask. And what we've done is we've taken all the lessons that we've learned from soul winning on the streets in London, and we've been able to put all of those lessons into one place. And that should be coming out literally in a couple of weeks. It'll be here before uh, Mission Focus. Uh, it'll come here before then, before the end of the year. It'll be available. If you sign up, then I'm going to be able to send out an email to let you know exactly when it's available. It's going to be called Just Ask a Complete Soul Winner's Guide. And so this is going to hopefully, no matter what your experience, no matter what your Bible knowledge, this will give you the tools that you need to be able to be a soul winner. Mindy and I both, along with the kids, we have a great burden. We have a great burden to uh, enable every believer to be a soul winner. The statistics out there show us that the vast majority of believers in Christianity will never share their faith with another person for their entire life. Now, that is the vast majority of people. But one of the things that I have found in my own personal experience, though, is that the vast majority of believers actually want to be soul winners. They just don't know how. They don't know how to go about it. Because trying to be a soul winner and explain the gospel to someone, is it's, it's complicated, especially within relationships. It's difficult. So we want to do everything we could to give you the tools you needed to be able to share your faith and to be able to share Christ with other people. And I hope that this book that's coming out uh, will be a great tool for you to be able to do that. And so we want to do everything we can to put this book into the hands of every single believer because we want every believer to be a soul winner. So I want you guys to keep your eyes out for that. Now, the last thing that I want to say to you today is I want to ask you a question. When we go through all of this stuff that I'm talking to you about today, and some of it's exciting, some of it's boring, some of it's cool to think about what will happen in the future, but when we think about trying to plant a church in the city of London, the question that I want to ask you is, why in the world should we bother? Why should we bother to do that? Because the truth is, even though I, I think personally that I have the greatest job in the world, I love my job. I get to go around and talk about Jesus all the time. I get to help people. 
Uh, I get to meet people all over the world and I, I get to travel to places all over the world and, and, and I love my job. There's so many great things about my job. I could go on and on about that. But at the same time, I won't lie to you. Trying to plant a church in the city of London is a considerable amount of trouble. So why in the world would we bother? You guys like ice cream? Anybody like ice cream? Come on, hands up. Let's see them. Yeah. You, now, see, that's my favorite thing in the world is ice cream. Now, I would much rather sit on my couch with a big bowl of uh, Bluebell homemade vanilla style. That's my favorite kind. And watch one of Mindy's stupid Hallmark movies. <laughs> right? I would just love to sit there and just watch that and just allow the blue light to wash all my problems away. It's so nice to be able to just sit there and relax, and I get to live vicariously through all of the characters on the on the TV show and just enjoy my life. Why in the world would I not do that? Why in the world would I go through the trouble? My daughter is over in Wales right now trying to earn her degree. She lives with four other roommates. Uh, two of these roommates refuse to acknowledge her existence. They won't look at her. That's hard to do when you're in one flat. But they won't look at her. They won't acknowledge her existence. And they told her when she moved in it was because she's a Christian. And they hate Christianity. So they just won't even acknowledge her. The other, the other two will talk to her sometimes. And this is what we experience. This is, this is normal. My kids can tell you about that. It's, it's a normal thing to experience that type of hostility toward Christianity. And we could go on and bore you to tears with the, you know, the hardships of missionary life. But my question is why in the world would we bother to do that? Why in the world would your pastor go through all the trouble to plant this church? Why would he do that? Because I can, I can tell you, He's not here, so I can say on his behalf, without embarrassing him, that what him and Amy went through to plant this church is a considerable amount of trouble. Did you guys know that you guys are a lot of trouble? A lot of trouble. I'm kidding. Uh, Kind of. But uh, it is a lot of work and a lot of problems and a lot of trouble to plant a church. Why in the world would we do that? I want to show you. Why we would bother. If you turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes really quick, and I'm going to tell you why we bother to do all this stuff, to make these plans, why I would bother to go through the process that will require some sort of counseling to create a QR code, why I would do that. In 2 Kings chapter 7, starting in verse 3, We see four lepers sitting outside the city. They're up there in the northern kingdom around Samaria. They're sitting outside the city because they're lepers. But they're not welcome. And it's this what I'm going to show you is such a beautiful picture of what we were like before we met Christ. Because right now, as they sit outside the city, there in Samaria, the entire Syrian army has completely surrounded them. They're in the middle of a war. That's what we were like whenever we didn't have Christ. We were out in the world with no hope. And not just out in the world with no hope, but we were born into a spiritual war, were we not? We were born completely surrounded. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle with what? Principalities. And with spiritual wickedness in high places. We are in a spiritual war, right? And added to that, we actually get to experience a lot of physical wars as well, don't we? We are born into a spiritual war. Just like these guys are living in the middle of this 
war. But added to that, they have leprosy, which at this particular time in history is a terminal illness. They will die from this. It will kill them. There was no cure for them for this. And we too were born with the same terminal illness. The leprosy throughout the whole Bible is a picture of sin. It is a, it is a terminal illness that lives in the flesh. And it's a picture of sin and we were all born in sin. We were all born with a terminal illness that would kill us. There is no worldly cure for that illness. Now added to that, if that wasn't bad enough, the Christmas bonus for these guys is that there's also a famine in the land. Everybody is starving to death. And we know, according to Amos chapter 8, that there is a famine in the world, too. Not a famine of bread, but a famine of what? Of the Word. I love being able to teach and to a church of Bible students, because you guys already know all these answers. That's why I'm kind of moving quickly through that, because you guys have heard this. You guys know this. What a beautiful picture of us before we met Christ, born in sin, a terminal illness for which there is no cure. What a difficult thing to try to explain to the lost world that sin has ruined us. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, that's one thing I hope you will hear is that you cannot fix your life. Sin has ruined you. It is a terminal illness for which you have no cure. It doesn't matter how many sit-ups you do. It doesn't matter how much lion's mane you drink. It doesn't matter how many supplements you take or how many side hustles you have or how many books you read or how many charities you give to or how many relationships that you heal. It does not matter. You cannot fix your life. It's too late. It's over. You are one of these lepers. We were one of these lepers before we came to Christ. We were there with a terminal illness, with a a spiritual war surrounding us, and there is a famine in the land. All of us need to be reminded, if you're lost, you need to know this. If you're not lost, you need to be reminded that outside of these doors... When you go out into the world, there is nothing out there for you. It is a famine out there. There is nothing out in the world that will feed your soul. We have a rule at our house when it comes to media. That is, you're allowed to watch the screens, because screens are here to stay, people, right? I mean, you can't, it's like trying to escape water. Uh, they're, they're here whether you like it or not. And I think technology can be a blessing, but we have one simple rule at our household that enables us to cope with the media, which I can, you know, I usually call it our house, I call it the devil's pulpit media. And there's one way that we use to cope with all of that, is that, it, that is you can watch the screens, obviously excluding anything that, you know, would obviously dishonor Christ, but... You can watch the screens, but here's the rule. You cannot believe a single word that they say. I don't care if it's Tucker Carlson. Okay? I don't care if it's Jordan Peterson. I don't care if it's someone that you like politically. And you say, well, what about the preachers, Brian? There's a lot of preachers on there. It goes double for them. It goes double for them. If you hear a preacher online, if you hear a preacher on a screen... You do not believe anything he tells you until you confirm it with this. If you hear some political pundit say anything, you do not believe anything that they say until you can confirm it with that book. If you hear someone that's trying to sell you something, if you hear someone that's trying to help you fix up your life, you hear some life coach, oh my gosh. If you even see a life coach, just scroll, okay? Just scroll. Just keep keep scrolling. If you hear anyone that tells you anything, do not believe anything that you hear on a screen until you have the opportunity to confirm that from some other source, namely the Bible. That's our rule. You know what? You want to know why? Because there's nothing that this world has out there that can actually feed your soul. It's all fast food. It's not nourishment. 
It's not going to feed your soul. What everyone is experiencing out there, and this is the trouble because they don't realize it, is that they're living in a famine and they are starving themselves to death. They're in a spiritual war with a terminal disease, just like these four lepers that you see right here in 2 Kings 7. So they're sitting there, and so they start looking at each other. And they start asking some questions. Do you see it right there in the passage? One of the guys looks at his buddies, and he's like, Are we just going to sit here until we die? Now that's a good question, isn't it? What a wonderful question. Is that what we're here to do, guys? Are we just going to sit here until we die, like me with my ice cream? Mindy walked in the other night and I was rubbing it on my chest. I love, I love ice cream. Okay, I love it. I could sit there and eat it every single day and just watch the Hallmark movies and be all Christmassy and it would just be wonderful. Is that what we're going to do? Because that's what we do. We sit. I sit at the dinner table and Mindy, she fixes me these most, the most wonderful. There is no restaurant in the world that I would rather eat at than Mindy's table. Most wonderful meals. I sit there and then I eat. So then I go and I sit down and I watch a show. And then I go lay down and I go to sleep. And then I get up and I sit at the table to eat breakfast. And then I go sit at my office. And then I go sit with a friend. And we're just sitting, sitting, sitting. And we're supposed to just sit here all day, every day, until we're dead. Is that the plan? This is what this guy's asking. Look at the situation we're in. Famine, war, terminal illness. Are we just going to sit here or are we going to do something about it? So he's like, we got options. And he says, we can go back into the city, but there's a famine, so we'll just starve to death, right? Or we could just sit here and then we will die. He says, or we could run out to the enemy. What a beautiful picture. Because before we were saved, guess what God was? Yeah, he was our enemy, wasn't he? We were his enemies, according to Romans chapter 5. And so they said, we could run out to the enemy and beg for mercy. And maybe they will give us food. He says, but if they don't and they kill us, no big loss, because guess what? We're going to die anyway. And his friends are like, man, you are a dream at parties, right? What a wonderful idea. Let's just try one of these because we got nothing to lose because we're just going to die anyway. So they decide, let's go out to our enemy and beg for mercy. And what a wonderful picture of what we found when we got saved. What a wonderful picture. They ran out to their enemy at that time to find mercy. And they found that what God had done in the night is that he had come in and he had wiped out their enemy for them. Already, God had come in and wiped out the entire enemy. And isn't that exactly what we found when we came to the cross? That Christ, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he defeated Satan, that he defeated sin, that he defeated the grave. And you came out to what you thought, okay, was death for sure. And you found that God had already defeated your enemy for you in Christ Jesus. And they came into the tents that were left behind. These guys got so scared and they ran for their lives. The armies did. They left everything behind. Man, there were still pigs still roasted on the spit. They left all their iPads behind. They left all their clothes still hanging in the closet. They left all their treasures just sitting in the tents waiting for these four lepers to come and find this treasure. And what treasure did they find? You see right there? Starting in verse 8 as you go in. It says that they found this treasure. They found first bread and drink and water. And isn't that the first treasure that we found when we came to Christ? We found that bread that has come down from heaven. We who were starving to death, we finally found that bread of life that can feed our souls. That water that comes out of the rock that feeds us. And it says drink there. They get drink. We also found that wonderful wine, which was his blood that came out of him that nourished us. They found this wonderful treasure, but that's not all they found. It says that they found silver. Silver in the Bible, as you trace it through, has always been connected with the priestly office, with the redemptive ministry of the priests. 
We don't have time to go through and to prove all of that. But if there was a man that needed to be redeemed, remember a child when it first comes out belongs to the Lord, but if it needs to be redeemed, then it's redeemed according to their age by what? By silver. That's how that they are redeemed before the Lord. And whenever our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave his life to redeem us, how much did it cost? It cost 30 pieces of what? Silver. They found redemption first. It's one of the great treasures that they found. But not only that, but they found gold, it says. Do you see right there? It says they found gold, which is always connected with the deity of Christ. Not only were we redeemed when we found Christ, we found the wonderful bread and the drink. They found the redemption, but we became sons of God. We were brought into the royal family so that the Bible tells us that we are not only priests, but we are kings in Jesus Christ. We are a part of the royal family now. This is the treasure that they found, but it doesn't stop there. It says they also found what? What was the last thing they found? Raiment. Isn't that what you found when you came to Christ? When you were naked in your sins and he took you and he clothed you in the robes of righteousness. Man, what a wonderful picture. Isn't it fantastic when you think about the treasure? I mean, the the desperate state you were in before you came to Christ. And the wonderful treasure that you stumbled upon. Can you imagine these four lepers when they stumbled on this treasure? Can you imagine even just looking at their faces when they stumbled upon this treasure? Now, here's the problem. Here's kind of the twist of the story. They find this wonderful treasure. What do they do with it? They take this treasure, it says, and they hid it. They start stuffing it in their pockets. They start taking it back to their own tents. They start trying to hide it. How how in the world could they do that? There's a whole city under siege right behind them that is starving to death. They just stumbled upon all this treasure and food and water and supplies and everything that people would need to survive. And they took this wonderful treasure and they hid it. My question, is that a picture of us also? Is that what happened when we found this treasure? Did we take it and we hide it? When we have a world that is out there right now that is starving to death. And what do you do? Do you just take this wonderful treasure and then you just sit on it? And keep it hidden from those who need it the most? And one of them speaks up. You can read it right there in the verse. He speaks up and he says, we do not well. Do you see that? He says, we do not well. He says, if we carry on like this until the morning then some mischief shall befall us. Do you see that? Now we know dispensationally right now the time in which we serve. It is nighttime right now. We know that tears are in the night, but what? Joy comes when? In the morning. We're waiting for the time for the sun to rise. We're waiting for that moment when Christ will come back and he will rapture us out and we get to stand before him. And we all think, we talk about this all the time, I can't wait to see my Savior's face. It's going to be such a joy, but you be careful what you wish for. He says, if we carry on like this until the morning, some mischief shall befall us. And of course, we'll be saved. But what about it whenever we see our Savior's face? What about when we stand there before the judgment seat of Christ? What about it when we finally lock eyes with our Lord and Savior? Do you remember The night that Christ was crucified and Peter denied his Lord three times. Do you remember the story? He denied his Lord three times and they came up. We know you're one of those Jesus people. He's like, no, I don't know who he is. Another one says, man, we know that you're one of them. And he's like, I don't know. Another maid comes up and he begins to curse and try to convince her 
that he's not one of them and he's like denying him. I don't know who he is. And it says that Christ was in the courtroom when that happened, that when he denied him on that last time, it says that Christ turned around. He heard him. He turned around and him and Peter locked eyes. And Peter saw his face. And he remembered what Christ said to him. That before the cock crows that you will deny me three times. And he ran out and he wept bitterly. And I can think of fewer places in the Bible that are a better picture of what it's going to be like for many of us at the judgment seat of Christ. It'll be a place for joy for many, but it'll also be a place of a lot of tears. Can you imagine what it would be like for us to finally reach that moment and for us to lock eyes with our Savior, even though we claimed that we believe in Him, but with our actions we have denied Him in our life? I say to you the exact same thing that this leper has said. If we carry on this way until the morning, some mischief shall befall us. Whenever God takes the fire of his judgment and he puts it to all of our actions to see, of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what sort it is. And whether or not our lives are nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. If our lives are nothing but Hallmark movies and ice cream. Or if our lives will be gold, silver, and precious stones. If we take the word of God and we invest it into the souls of men, the only two things in your whole life that last forever, if we invest it into the eternal things so that we have fruit waiting on him, because according to John 15, verse 8, that's the only reason why we exist, is to produce fruit for our Lord and Savior and for our Heavenly Father. We're going to get before him at the judgment seat, and he's going to say, where is the fruit? Where is the fruit that you have brought? Where are the eternal things of the gold, the silver, the precious stones that you have invested in your life? Where are they? Do you have any? Do you have any that will be waiting on you when you get there? This guy says, man, if we carry on like this, there's nothing but trouble for us. So what did they do instead? They did a complete 180 It says, he says, what we need to do is we need to, two words or three words, he says, we need to go and tell. Go and tell. So that's what they did. They went and found someone important. They told him who told somebody else who was important, who told somebody else who was important. And eventually the whole city knew and they all ran out so that they could be fed, so that they could live. So that they could live. Guys, that is the reason why we bother. That's the reason we go through the trouble. One of these days, I'm going to have to come face to face before my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what in the world am I supposed to tell him? What in the world am I supposed to tell him when I see him? The one who died for me, the one who gave me this entire treasure. And me, knowing that there is a whole world that is starving to death, that has a terminal disease, that is surrounded in spiritual warfare, and I have the treasure that they need to live, and I stuffed my pockets with it. What in the world am I supposed to tell him? Well, I didn't really know you know, how to get that conversation started. I, I, I didn't feel comfortable and I was afraid and you know the the whole soul winning thing it's not really my thing it's not really my personality you know the evangelism stuff is just it's not my gift is that what I'm supposed to tell him you you guys have people in your lives right now that you know that don't know Christ There's some of you that are wrestling with the possibility that maybe God would send you as a missionary somewhere. Or maybe somewhere here in the States that he would send you to plant a church. Or maybe a ministry that needs to be started. Maybe it's just a co-worker that needs you to come and to talk to them and to say, Hey, would you like to sit down and let me show you what it means to follow Christ? You know that there is somebody and you're waiting 
And you've got this treasure in your pockets and it is hidden from those who are lost. Romans chapter 1 and verse 14 and 15, Paul says to, he says, I am a debtor, right? To the Greeks, to the barbarians. He's saying to the sophisticated and the unsophisticated alike. That's his way of saying to the whole world. He says, I am a debtor. What does he mean by that? He says, what he's saying is, he said, I owe it to them to share the gospel with them. Do you realize that? That person that is out there and they are still a leper. They are still dying. They are still in a famine and a spiritual war. Because they are a human being, we owe it to them to share the gospel with them, don't we? Because they're another human being. Why would we not tell them? We owe it to them, Paul says. And if we do not owe it to them, we certainly owe it to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who became poor so that we could become so rich in him. Do we not at least owe it to him? And we say, yes, but it's so uncomfortable. Yes, it is uncomfortable whenever we try to talk about that and we try to share the gospel with people. We try to make disciples and we try to go through the trouble of planting churches. It is uncomfortable and it is filled with spiritual warfare of our own. We get attacked by the devil. We have relationships that break down. But what we have to teach and what we have to say is too important for us to keep it to ourselves. It is too important For you to just go home and watch another movie. It's too important. It's important for his glory. It is important for their soul. So I want you to write someone's name down. That you're going to talk to this week. You're going to call them, email them, text them. And I can say this to you guys because I know that you'll do it. I know that I'm preaching to the choir. And you're going to call them. You're going to text them. God forbid you text them, you know. But text them. If that's what, if, if, if you're, you know, young and that's what you do, text them and say, let's meet for coffee. Let me talk to you about this somehow, however you want to say it. That's the reason why we bother, guys. That's the reason why we go through the trouble. That's the reason why we pray. That's the reason why we give. That's the reason why we go. That's the reason why we plant churches. That's the reason why that my kids have no physical relationship with their grandparents. That's why we bother. It's because these people need to know about Jesus Christ or they will go to hell if they do not hear the truth of the gospel. How long can we sit on it? How much trouble is that worth to us? That is the reason why we bother. So please, please continue to pray as we go. Please, I hope that you will take with you our eternal gratitude for your prayers, for your support. And as we go to try to plant another church, I pray that you will continue to pray. To stand with us. Most of all, I hope that you know just how much that we love you guys. All right. God bless.